0: Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. Our guest today is Stan Miranda, the co founder and chairman of Partners Capital, a global OCIO with over $50 billion under management. Stan was previously a longtime director at Bain and chairman of their worldwide executive committee, and also a co founder of Evolution Global Partners, a venture capital firm affiliated with Kleiner Perkins and TPG. I was eager to talk to Stan about the very interesting DNA of Partners Capital and how they engage with their very talented clients, many of whom are private equity partners themselves, endowment heads, and substantial family offices. Stan has thought deeply about the endowment model and has written many excellent white papers for partners, some of which we discuss. We cover the upcoming energy transition and why the route is not net zero, how he combines strategic thinking and analysis with the endowment model into the playbook they use to start partners, how private equity partners manage their own personal money and the transitions they go through in their own lives, and how Stan thinks about alternatives to alternatives. Please enjoy my excellent conversation with the engaging Stan Miranda. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. I always love starting with someone's
1: background. Could you tell us where you grew up? I grew up in uh, the Central Valley of California. And to fast forward, I left California because I didn't get into the right business school and haven't really been back since now it's 1980. So. Are you talking about Stanford? I didn't get into Stanford.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Was that an issue at the time? Oh God! I didn't want to leave California. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and but the odds of Californians getting into Stanford were tougher, just tougher. So if I'd been in Idaho or something, I might have had a shot. But ended up in the land of cockroaches and freezing winters in Boston. Where did you undergrad? Undergrad at California State University in, in Chico. And what did you study? I had three degrees. It was business, economics, and computer science. <laughs> this was the 70s and i was a big anti-war demonstrator and okay. yeah in fact i even junior high school i organized the first ever my first ever anti-vietnam war sit-in at roland junior high school and i was not focused on academics really at that point in time i had a draft number and i was ready to go to canada and so play set would that would that have that been around 73 74 72 73 okay <clears throat> now, did you come from an activist family, a business family? My father was a stockbroker. He ran Blythe, Eastman, and Dillon's West Coast Operation. How did you get into the anti-war movement? Just really felt strongly about it. I thought about it. And I just still, to this day, I really struggle with the validation of that as any response to any action. So anyway, I don't think it was terribly deep as I was 13, 14 years old, but I felt really strongly about it. And then I just carried on. Right through to ha- having my draft number, and organized several other events in the same vein. Did you stay
0: in activism when you were
1: in college? I did orga- organize both Vietnam, anti-Vietnam, and it was pretty much over them. But and also an anti-gun rally sit-in in the science building.
0: It's interesting that you bring that up because there's been a lot of recent declassification, so we're getting to see a lot of documents from that period. What are your thoughts on the Vietnam War these days?
1: No different. I think it was a learning experience for America. I don't think they'd repeat it. Iraq may tell you otherwise, but I don't think they'd repeat it. So you went from anti-war to HBS. I did, I did well undergrad. Obviously, it was easy. And then I got a job with Deloitte Haskins themselves, which was a great three-year experience learning how to think. What was HBS like when you got there? But I don't think it's that different than it is today. <laughs> Although I know the cases are shorter because people have, according to professor friends I have there, they've got lower attention span. By the way, I just had our first ever Harvard Business School case written on Partners Capital. It's only 14 pages long before you get to all the numbers in the back.
0: They used to be at least 30 pages. Yeah. Now, who who did that study, by the way?
1: Louis Viserra. He's the head of the Investment Management Program and the co-dean of the school.
0: And what does it feel like to be under the microscope as opposed
1: to reading a case study? It was a blast. We've actually it's our second one. Ten years ago, they wrote one on Cambridge College endowments, and we were featured in that as the advisor, of the outsourced investment office. But this one is just on us, and it's on our due diligence process, which is really it's a very scientific approach to evaluating whether an asset manager is justifying their fees or not. I'm very much about what we call beta replication or factor replication models. So anyway, it's going. It's very scientific uh, case study with the examples of two tech managers that we had. We had to disguise them heavily, but it forces the students to decide between one or the other equity long, short tech manager right after the tech bubble burst as of today. So it's a good story. It'll be a fun case to teach, and I hope to teach it. What is the conclusion of the case? So the contrast is one manager who is tied to a large venture capital firm, and that's the source of their public equity insights. So how valuable is that versus another firm, which is much smaller, it doesn't have the billions and billions of dollars of the assets of the first one, more entrepreneurial and down to just deep fundamental research that they do themselves, not connected to any other institution. So it's David and Goliath's story, which is a classic example of what we're always faced with is These great institutions that have really proven their processes over the years, but have taken on too many assets, and you never know when the party's going to end, versus the brand new firm that doesn't have a long track record, but you feel very good about the drive and hunger of the team. It's a classic trade-off. Okay, excellent. And Bain, after college? Yeah, what we call the partner with the greatest hair, Mitt Romney, hired me, and he It definitely sold me on a story that did come true for him, but not so much for me. The way you described Bain was as this hybrid that wasn't really a consulting firm, that it wasn't really going to charge per hour. It was going to charge fees in the form of shares and performance results payments. And we did that, actually, but we still also charged mostly just for hours, but... Two years later, in 1984, two years after I joined, Romney set up Bain Capital. But Bain Consulting was always seeking to get paid on results and still does to this day, which just played to really just more more interest I had in private equity than consulting throughout my career at Bain. I was in Tokyo when Mitt set up Bain Capital, and I, I wasn't interested in leaving Japan. I was having a blast understanding this miracle called the Japanese model. But in 1987, we successfully built, there were three of us from California that built the Tokyo Asian office, and there were roughly 40 Japanese nationals in place, and we were pretty obsolete, and I headed to London, where most of my Asian clients were actually headquartered, so London was a logical place to be, and this is late 80s, right? Private equity is just taking off. Everybody, like bank, capital, Blackstone, are launching in Europe. And then the newbies like Senvin and Primera were all setting up and I was 33 years old. I probably had more credibility with approaching them than a 55-year-old CEO, although I had a number of those clients like Vodafone and Diageo. But uh, I was really interested in building a consulting practice, serving private equity firms and getting paid in the form of equity in the companies that we analyzed. And that's what we did. And so it was happening both in California and London simultaneously, and I was leading the European practice. And actually, first case was spinning out Senvin from the British Coal Board, which was a blast. But then just built this amazing consulting practice where Bain was pretty much invited into almost every major deal by the time I was leaving Bain in 1999. And today, Bain's consulting practice to private equity is three times larger than the next largest and it's brilliantly successful and what happened that really led me down my current path is we just got paid so much in co-investment it was doing so well we organized the process around it we had an investment committee and I was on that investment committee and every Bain partner benefited from the private equity investments and there was a point in time where we were making more money from our private equity investments than we were from being paid for our services at Bain and so that carried on through to the tech boom, so 97, and that's when I was actually chairman of the board at that point in time of Bain Worldwide, and I was just so keen to launch an internal venture capital firm, and so was Dave Sanderson in California, so the two of us launched what's called Bain Lab, and for two years, we seeded startups, and this is inside the consulting business, and basically what we're doing detailed strategic plans for fees, for equity, sweat equity. And uh, that was doing pretty well right through 99 when I had a bigger idea. Every big corporate client of Bain's, they were talking about some sort of IP that sat inside the company. Say one example is B of A bank had a factoring business which could easily go online so why not launch corporate ventures with the, our clients and David Bonderman was a big client of ours at TPG and he had the exact same idea but we needed somebody who knew something about venture capital to do this so we brought in Kleiner Perkins and set up a venture capital firm called Evolution Global Partners and it's, it's similar to KR today but that was $100 million of initial capital split from Bain, TPG, and Kleiner Perkins. The board was to dive for. We had Bonderman and Coulter. We had Brooke Byers and Ted Schlein. And we had John Donahoe from Bain. And so that was our board. And we were off to the races, building companies from scratch. And so I'd left Bain at this time. Bain Lab was left behind. And we're, I'm building the first company inside Evolution, which is called Level C's, which was an online shipping portal which made so much sense. And we got shareholder backing from almost every shipping company in the world, including BP, Shell, Cargill, even Shipbrokers, Clarkson. And I hired 150 people. I was the chairman and spent two years getting that off the ground. And then the tech bubble burst spectacularly. And it was back to square one. Kleiner Perkins was not doing any more investments. In their own portfolios, they certainly weren't going to be doing any more investments in ours. We were right in the middle of conversations with Yale Endowment, CalPERS, and the Ford Foundation on raising more capital, and we stopped cold. And so I spent the summer of 2001 shutting down Evolution, really folding it into California at Kleiner, and they took over the investments from there. And Partners Capital was born out of my summer activities.
0: What advantage do you think you learned at Bain helped you at, at Bain Capital? How did that make you folks competitive with the investment banks?
1: We're strategic thinkers. and I know that sounds right. But when we set up Partners Capital, my next door neighbor, Paul Demetrik, who's actually a lawyer, but he was working at InvestCorp. He was a private equity guy. And he just said, Stan, put your strategy consulting hat on. Your, you, what would you do to solve this problem we have of private banks with our conflicts and lack of transparency and some competence issues? And there's no one to take care of our wealth. When we're massively overcommitted to private equity, we need the medicine of diversification. What do we do? And standard Bain answer would be, don't reinvent the wheel. Somebody out there has an answer to that. And in front of me on the table in the kitchen at that time when Paul asked me that question, believe it or not, was a book called Pioneering Portfolio Management written by David Swenson. I was reading it because we were trying to get money from Yale Endowment, right? And so everybody who wanted to get money from Yale Endowment better have read that book. Right? And when I read it, I don't ever, for the Harvard MBAs in the audience, it, it reminded me of Michael Porter. As a strategy writer, it was so articulate, so clear, so practical and implementable. It became a cookbook for answering Paul's question, really. Let's steal from the best. Let's just take the Yale endowment model, firstly to ourselves and then to our friends, mostly in the private equity world at that time, who have the same problem of too much personal balance sheet exposure to their own fund and private equity in particular.
0: So I'm interested in how that came into being, because obviously David Swenson had certain advantages that are almost impossible to get in the commercial space, but also a for-profit business has the advantage of being able to hire lots of great talent. So how did you apply that to a for-profit company?
1: First of all, let let me just define what it is, right? So not everybody has the same definition of the endowment model. David Swenson has passed away, but I think he put his hand on my shoulder after I summarized it and he say, you got it more or less right. But there were three pillars to the endowment model in our fall answer, which is number one, high static risk, right? Your endowment, it's the endowment model. The money's long term. You can take lots of volatility. So take high risk. And most of them take the equivalent risk of about 70% of the equity markets, but it's static risk. And that's just believing in the efficiency of markets and not timing them. So that's pillar number one. Pillar number two is the free lunch of diversification. Don't put all your eggs in one asset class basket, um, which is what we've done as individuals. And so the multi asset class diversification with a bias towards the privates with their, say, 5% illiquidity premium is the second pillar. And the final pillar is who they allocated money to. They didn't believe they should be picking stocks and bonds and properties and private companies, but rather there's going to be experts out there that justify their fees, not very many of them, but some. And uh, so allocate to third parties, but in all likelihood, you're not going to allocate to the big institutional, sometimes publicly owned asset managers, quite the opposite. You're going to be focused on the entrepreneurial owner operated asset managers who have their own skin in the game. Most of them are violating the rule we violated. They have most of their personal wealth in their own funds and that's what you want. When you're allocating to them, you want to sit on the same side of the table, totally aligned. So those are the three pillars. And there's nothing saying that we couldn't take that in a commercial setting to our clients. I think the main obstacle looking 23 years later, looking back, is that, I'm not sure sure, it's that different for Yale, but In any institution, especially financial institutions, you have to grow to attract and retain the best talent. You just have to. And so, as we know, growth is the enemy of performance. But the same situation, I'd say, would apply to Yale to some extent in that if you're not growing, you can't promote people, you're not adding headcount, you're going to lose people. It's going to be turnover. But I, I think the endowment world, Princeton, MIT, Stanford, Yale, have compensated for that by just being super prestigious places. To work and the people, the types of people they hire are totally happy being the equity analyst for. And that's just not the type of people that we have. We have very ambitious people who do not want to be the equity analyst forever. That's the challenge. We have to grow. We have to keep attracting the most talented people. And the way we do that without destroying performance is you invest in capabilities. That's what any asset manager does to survive their growth rate and the enlarged organization that you're constantly creating. So you had a playbook. How did you go about standing up partners' capital? I didn't know anything about these other asset classes, but we I was an insider in all these private equity firms, right? We consulted to them, we set them up in many cases. So we just the we was really Paul and I at, at the time. We just thought that we understood asset managers inside out. And private equity people really going to be all that different from hedge fund managers and public equity managers? No, they're not. So we're going to take our, our DNA and understanding asset managers and just apply it to these other asset classes. That was totally naive because every asset class is completely different. But like every startup, entrepreneurs have to be ignorant about the risks that face them ahead or they wouldn't do what they're going to do. So We just set out to try and be the experts in these asset classes, but we're not dumb. The very first person we hired was a a former Goldman Sachs hedge fund veteran named Bob Lerner. And then I brought in two people that I'd worked with in the past in Bain who had since gone on to other investment outfits. John Collis, who was at the Wallenberg family office, uh, and Will Fox, who's heading up our North American operations. And the the four of us plus Paul, part-time chairman, were really the founding team, were the founders of the Sharm. And so it was a like-minded people who would already worked with each other in many cases for a long time, um, really enjoyed each other's company. And then we started infilling with more junior analysts and understanding each and every asset class in great depth. And one thing I learned at Bain, as the expert on it, for example, continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis, which is a part of hemodialysis. I'm an expert on that because we pulled out a blank sheet of paper and I studied it because we had to pitch it in Japan for Baxter Travenol, And so that, I applied that same theory to the investment world, pulled out a blank sheet of paper on every asset class and said, we're going to know more than Blackstone knows about hedge funds and their BAM outfit because they learned it all organically over lots of time and you build up lots of baggage and misconceptions we're going to get a modern clear deep set of thoughts on how to maximize alpha in the hedge fund space by starting with from scratch and analyzing the hell out of it so that was the model and we went from asset class to asset class the very first one was absolute return hedge funds and then we were in fixed income and liquid credit and just migrated across to property, and then private debt in 2010, and just covered what we call 13 asset classes in depth with our 65 people today.
0: How much Bain DNA is in the firm? Is the strategy consulting toolbox useful in asset allocation, or did you have to make changes?
1: Mitt Romney, (laughs) during his presidential campaign, I said, He said, what are you doing? I said, "Well, created the bane of the wealth management business or industry? And that is, the culture is very bane, which is, first and foremost, it's a very team-oriented, united organization where there's total benefit of the doubt given, insane amounts of trust and high integrity. So there's values at the core of it that are very much bane values, but then it's good old the usual data-driven, deep fundamental analysis of everything we do without over-analyzing the 80-20 rule applies just as much here as it did at bang.
0: How much is managing the portfolio and how much is managing people?
1: I don't think we spend a lot of time managing people because people are managing themselves. Everybody's pretty motivated, set out a clear role and a clear set of responsibilities. We're brutal on deadlines and it all goes pretty Organically. And so we get to focus on what we love, which is just understanding what's going on in the world and applying that learning to our clients' investment strategies.
0: And so, what were those early years like? The OCIO business, obviously an accepted part of the field today, but maybe not as well known back then.
1: It was a classic startup. First of all, it, nobody called it OCIO or Outsourced Investment Office. We didn't have a name for what we really were. And I don't think the industry really existed before that. And so we were just simply replicating Yale and making it for sale to smaller endowments and family offices. That's what we were doing. But we didn't have a track record. And it turns to he started. Year number one, we had $25 million worth of assets. We patted ourselves on the back for getting there. Year number two, we said we'd shut it down if we didn't get to 100 million. We got to 99.9. And year three, we, we said break even is 300 million. And we're not paying ourselves. We're not going to do this any longer. And we hit 400 million. And so we were on fire in 2004, getting new clients like Cambridge University Endowments and Oxford Colleges and a number of private high schools in the US. We're getting some real brand name clients that came in largely because a lot of our private equity GP clients were on their investment committees. But our in- institutional business just took off. And the next year was 1.5 billion, then 3 billion. And it was all about slowing growth, not fueling growth. So it was a classic startup. We had crazy, wonky, cheap offices in the central London and these shared spaces in Boston and didn't pay ourselves very much. Pretty classic startup culture and environment. And we try to keep that to today. We're very focused on our costs, for example, and we tend to get things done insanely quickly. <laughs> We, the adage here is that once you've thought it at Partners Capital, it's pretty much done. That's a startup sort of mentality. If you're going to do it again, what would you do differently, though? This is a minor thing, really. But my past experience, just the evolution experience of California and London, I said to myself, we're just not going to have a California office. The time zone thing is just a pain. And it really is a problem when you've got Asian offices, European offices, and East Coast office. California's a problem. So we didn't have a California office until 2019, which was, it was my bugbear that I just, it it was an impossible time zone. So for an international firm, you have to start at 4.30 in the morning. And sometimes you're doing meetings at one to three in the morning from California. So it's, but that was a mistake. It meant we didn't have the same network of venture investments nor venture capital clients. And that's all been rectified with a 15-person a office now at number three in Barcadero. But I shouldn't definitely needed to be on the West Coast. And I think that held us back in some of our venture and tech investing, which has now been rectified. More outsourced IT, everything we, we built ourselves, and that has its limitations. And so I, I've learned my lesson there. But otherwise, I think we've made a, a lot of the right steps along the way. What do you feel that you see in London that you don't see in New York? Actually, I find those two cities, some of the two most similar cities, but London is unique in its total international outlook. Both the people that live there and the businesses, it's the hub of the world, in my opinion. New York's not far from that. It's probably the closest thing to it in the United States, but London is anything other than parochial. It's it's very broad-minded, liberal, ambitious, hardworking, multicultural.
0: I love it. From an investment perspective, do you think you have any advantages?
1: It is the center of the time zone. world. We can certainly work that 24-hour cycle, if you will. But also, I just think we've got some of the deepest thinkers in the investment world live right here. And we get to sit right across the table from them all the time and talk to them and share views and debate and challenge. And New York comes close to that. But I still think London, just across every asset class, you have experts on emerging markets here. You have great thinkers on currency risk, just private equity, activism, energy transition thinker, if anything, the energy transition thinking is coming from London.
0: It really is. So you have background from the dot com era in using data, and there's been an explosion, obviously, in the use of data. How has that evolved for partners over the years? How has that given you an advantage?
1: You're right. It is huge in our business. But first of all, a really important point, beyond the endowment model, the one thing we've really changed most fundamentally is risk management. And what we mean by that is just understanding what you're owning. We go into every single portfolio and understand not just the sector exposure and the geographic exposure, the large cap, small cap, but about 20 different factors, growth, value, the profitability of the company. There's so many factors that are risks essentially that are buried and not always totally visible to you and a lot of times you learn about them after they hit you and they generally hit you in the negative side not the positive side you think it's alpha until it's not and it's usually factor exposure you wish you knew and so that's a lesson that every endowments learning they don't go nearly deep as we do in terms of understanding the factor exposure you have. And so that requires a lot of data, a huge amount of data. And we use it to assess the performance of all the asset managers out there in the world. We see thousands of them a year. Without using the factors to understand past performance, you can't know whether they're really generating alpha in excess of their fees. And so it's critical to our business, and it should be to every endowment-style investor or really any investor in third-party managers, and we build huge databases. We're in late stages of building in deal cloud for our data layer. And then our client functionality is, sits on top of that same data layer as our asset manager. You're building uh, this all in-house? On the back of deal cloud, which is the, out, the external application. Right. But yes, we're building all the, the functionality on top, the client side and the asset manager side. It's just too customized, but I could pull up right now, for example, just any manager on the planet, and you can just see when all the last conversations were had, and I can read each of those. You can see all the performance and benchmarking and attribution for each of these managers, what we think about, manager transitions in them, and so forth. And the same thing goes for our client portfolios. We just pull up everything at our fingertips.
0: What are your thoughts on the current use of transformers? Is this going to be a big change in the way that you use data?
1: I, by the way, I would say we're not using machine learning or AI in any any major way. I'm trying to get exceptions to that. <laughs> we're all big chat GPT users, various dimensions. But I think that's ahead of us. And I don't think there are the applications yet, but I think they'll be coming out next 12, 24 months. And basically, we'll be replacing some of the more mundane analytical tasks that can be done by AI. But I still think the real insights have to come from senior veteran investors and making capital allocation decisions. Do you
0: think there'll be any advantage for allocators? Will it save time?
1: I don't know. It's a topic that's on our agenda. We're talking about our board meeting in July. We've got a small team on it. We don't have an informed answer to that right now. But as we think about it, we think the primary application is just going to be saving a lot of effort in both the more fundamental basic screening of managers to get to the shortlist. That should all be automated, pretty much. We should be able to draw on all the data that's out there in our databases, pull up the right data, show the side-by-side comparisons for all the managers and come up with the three without a lot of judgment required from our team. And then the client side, I, we're, I guess we're pretty automated there. We do almost an automatic rebalancing of portfolios
0: Your clients stretch along a long risk continuum from PE partners to long-term thinkers like endowments and pensions. Do you think differently about these different clients? Is there a tension in the strategy of the way you approach their portfolios?
1: This is a classic family office problem as well. Firstly, there are more similarities than you think, but taxes matter hugely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if it weren't for taxes... I could make a case that most individuals, especially our clients, which 50 million and above, our clients are long-term thinkers. The capital will outlive them. And so they should be long-term allocators and they can afford 40, 50% of their portfolios in illiquid assets. Add taxes, and it's totally different because mostly in the risk-managed strategies, hedge funds, absolute return, and equity long short, those are terribly tax-inefficient. Private debt is terribly tax-inefficient. So we generally scale down our allocations in those three areas for our clients. Also fixed income, but we don't do a lot of fixed income. We have relatively small allocations to fixed income. But we do use derivative overlays in portfolios, and generally those give us 60% long-term capital gains. And so we can use those for individuals as well as institutions. So taxes matter a lot. But right now, a really interesting observation is that the yields in private debt, you can pay the taxes. And still, the after-tax return is probably 6 or 7%. What's not to like about that? The audience should say the defaults that are coming, yes, there'll be some increase in defaults, but we still think the yields today warrant not even paying the 40% tax rate. So you wrote
0: an absolutely fascinating study about how private equity partners manage their own money outside of their funds. Could you describe the typical PE partner and maybe how they view their own money?
1: Very much like us. The reason we have them as clients is because we're kindred spirits. And so they're generally deep thinkers, very analytical, very structured in their thinking long-term, and really appreciate great analysis and science, hugely. In in many ways, they're our greatest teachers because they challenge us on so many fronts. And we go away and study something, and go back to them, and they love it, and we love it, and we gain from it, and all our other clients do. So that I hate to put it this simply, but they're MBA types, right? So they're just—they're not going to do anything on a whim or on gut or just a good feeling. They need the analysis. They want to see it. They're overly logical. That's where a barbell comes from. This logic of. What is something uncorrelated with their daily lives risk
0: i think you also mentioned that they weren't big spenders yeah. they didn't typically yeah, right. it wasn't a status game it wasn't and interestingly i think i don't have the quote but it was you said that they they certainly think a lot about the way they manage their own money but they don't want their children to inherit it
1: yeah two points there most people advise very wealthy families like we do are also have to be experts on jets and yachts and the like. We don't. Very few of our clients have jets and yachts. And that is, I think, in their DNA. M- most private equity GPs that are now worth half a billion or more, it's first-generation wealth. And they're thinking, like a lot of family offices do, about the longevity of that. If They've worked as hard as they've worked to accumulate it they do want to see it benefiting future generations, but not destroying future generations. And I think there's a general belief that it's very difficult to achieve that. And the less money you pass on, the easier it is to achieve. We have lots of clients that have passed on the full amount of wealth, but it's under very strong controls that limit its its distributions and so forth to various generations. But the private equity GPs... They're sitting on it themselves. They've already thought about the relatively modest amount they're going to pass on to their children. They're trying to get their children interested in what they're doing, but it's not likely because it's purely finance. It's not industry, if you will. And so they are going to be philanthropists. They're taking a long time to get to that stage of their lives. But some have already done it. But many of them, even in their 60s, have yet to really figure out the purpose of their philanthropy. Just because they're so analytical, they don't want to do something that's not additive, right? They don't want to just donate a charity that everybody donates to cure cancer. They want to do something where their money made a difference. The but-for factor, as they say, but for my money, this wouldn't have happened. And that's a really difficult challenge. I've written a white paper on your philanthropy strategy. And that's what the white paper is all about, is overcoming the inertia that is embedded in people who overthink philanthropy and just getting on with it. What do you mean overthinking it? They're trying to find the additionality. And that's very difficult, right? Without almost devoting your life to something, devoting your life to that philanthropy. But we've got examples where we've some of our clients have really cracked that. One's very much in the African wildlife preservation world, and that family's capital if it weren't for that the changes happening would happened to be in Zimbabwe wouldn't have otherwise happened
0: you think there's any contrast between the way they think about their money and the way tech entrepreneurs think about their money
1: yes but I just I think tech entrepreneurs are the opposite <laughs> they are not people that are going to overthink and make sure they've got the right data-driven quantity of analysis for every decision it's much more gut feel it's definitely more right brain and I think that can be Huge, and I'm going to back it. And they're not typically our clients because they're looking for the 10x, and we're the two to 3x people. We're the people that are not going to over concentrate and risk the overall wealth of the family. We're going to preserve it and grow it sensibly.
0: Could we go through the transition in their lives, how the typical PE partner looks at their portfolio?
1: They're first just thinking uncorrelated. So they've got all this exposure to something that they feel is. First of all, their own firms, what they call too much counterparty risk with myself. And I need to diversify that counterparty risk to quote one PEGP. And so they immediately think something very uncorrelated. US GPs pile into municipal bonds in a really big way. That's where it all goes. And that's their portfolio. Occasionally, they'll do a diversified portfolio of things that are completely uncorrelated Things like insurance investments, life settlements, royalty investments, and so forth. So they're just thinking zero risk. So a good example is Bain Capital set up their own internal partners' capital, if you will, a family office run by Colin Campbell. And their initial focus was just like anything uncorrelated, anything. And so that that was the initial phase. Obviously, the flaw with that is that it's still too concentrated and it's leaving a lot of money on the table. These are people that should be long-term investors. They can handle lots of volatility. And so we're generally convincing them that they're leaving money on the table. They can take a lot more risk. And we're generally adding everything that isn't equity risk as a phase two. So it could be private debt, although that's equity-like risk, but it's absolute return hedge funds and equity-long short managers that are relatively low net. Property is a perfect complement for the private equity portfolio, a private equity GP's personal portfolio. But ultimately, what they come back to us with, the third phase is that they come back to us and say, geez, your private equity portfolio is doing so well, and I'm not in it because I'm just in my Blackstone or my Bain Capital. And so why don't we just put our toe in your private equity portfolios? And then eventually they put their old foot and then they put all the way up to their waist in our private equity portfolios. And they have a strong bias. The buyout guys have a strong bias towards the tech and growth VC because they don't have any exposure to that. And all of a sudden they start to look like Yale endowment. They've got 40 to 50% in private equity, not 80% in private equity and other private assets. And the remainder is diversified across some more liquid high alpha generating strategies. And it's very risk managed, diversified, and there with, with some of the best to breed in each asset class as third-party asset managers. It's I mean, just a long journey uh, uh, that many of them shortcut to get to where most of our endowment clients are or our much more mature family office clients are. You think they have to go through that transition? No, it's just a psychological transition. I understand that you, they made so much money in such a short period of time. It just feels vulnerable, Right. And so you just want to take chips off the table, and that's why you just put it all in municipal bonds. Why, Stan, are you going to now put my money in a bunch of property assets that could have some sort of banking crisis affect it? And anyway, I I think it makes sense. And once they get comfortable with, to quote another private equity client of ours, my safety net is the scale of my wealth. Once they reach that realization they're generally moving pretty fast towards the endowment model adjusted for tax implications.
0: I'm interested in how they manage their own time. And when you get to above a certain threshold of wealth, you start to become interested in basically doing it yourself and investing with deals. You obviously, you have a tremendous Rolodex of your own and you start doing deals outside of your own fund. Do you see a lot of that?
1: Generally, they don't. They'll start to internally, and the private equity job is a 100-hour-a-week job, right? You can't do that on the side. So generally, what they do is stop. They phase off the last fund, and they build their own family office, and they what they say they're going to do is their own private equity deals. They've got a deal flow, and so they hire a couple people internally, and they do two deals a year where they're a minority shareholder. They might be on the board and they use the skills they developed over 20 years, 30 years in private equity in their family office. And then they realize that they probably won't be building a very well-balanced portfolio that their children could take on and manage after them. So they start institutionalizing it and turning it from a private equity fund that looks like a family office into something more institutional.
0: You had a great phrase in the study, which was rocks in the pond. These are legacy positions that you need to maneuver around in their portfolios. What are the discussions like around these positions? How do you get a talented, opinionated private equity partner to change their approach as they age?
1: logic and analysis. They just see it. One thing they do, think about their training, they're always asking us, how are your other clients doing? And, uh, and th- that's always a motivator. When they say, you're below the halfway mark based on your risk-adjusted performance. And they say, what's the difference? And the difference is inevitably that they haven't gone to the phase three that I just talked about. And so they, they generally get there just based on uh, the data and the facts and the analysis that we naturally share, to- share with them in their quarterly meetings with us.
0: You have this wonderful paper where you talk about what you call alternative alternatives. Why did you come up with that concept? Why is that important? Why did, why do people come to this conclusion that they need these?
1: So that relates right back to the barbell phase of private equity partners. And the example being Colin Campbell and his team at Bain Capital, where they really just wanted to find uncorrelated strategies. We did start it before that, but we had all these private equity partners where that's what they wanted. And they were sitting in municipal bonds, and we just thought, what a waste of a long-term mindset that can handle a lot more volatility. And so we just tried to find strategies that truly were not tied to financial markets. And there are a lot of those, but there are problems with them. But let me describe what they were. The biggest one was insurance, catastrophe insurance in particular, but also life settlements. Then you got pharmaceutical royalties. And then you've got something really interesting, which is just drug trials. So you're funding drug trials. And then the, our biggest alternatives, alternatives today is litigation finance. So you're backing big corporate lawsuits where you're paid on success. And a um, number of others. We've got one that's very interesting, which is backing NFL, NBA, PGA athletes, where they're three years into their career, somebody's trying to give them a $20 million contract they don't want to sign just yet, yet they could get injured next year and have never made a penny. So this particular vehicle pays them $3 million for 11% of their lifetime earnings, including sponsorships. And so far, that's worked out to be good for both the, the sportsman and for the investor. Do you find capacity constraints with these yeah. strategies? It's slow. All these strategies, here's the big problem, is that they're all small, generally. Litigation finance is getting a lot larger, but they're all pretty small. And as soon as others find out about them, there's too much capital and the returns go down. So catastrophe insurance is a classic example of that. Life settlements, you have the longevity issue as well that's made that a bad investment. But generally, they get flooded with too much capital, so I'd never start up a business dependent on alternative alternatives because you know by its nature each new strategy you find has a half-life that's just too short
0: so let's talk about the energy transition one of the first things you learn about in energy is cyclicality and elasticity how should we think about the cyclicality of the future energy market
1: if we're focused on the energy transition you're focused beyond the impact of cycles cycles will affect it because if energy prices go up energy prices is a big input to the pace of the energy transition the higher the prices the slower the pace and at least in the near term so cyclicality will affect it but we can't influence that and if we're truly long-term investors we just invest right through it in other words we're not trying to time it we're Very definitely just thinking very long-term. But what happens with fossil fuel prices is a big factor on these pace of the energy transition.
0: How should we think about that? How do you think the transition will play out or what are possible options?
1: Well, here's what most people are missing. Renewables are already competitive with fossil fuels at even low fossil fuel prices, okay? So we don't need to exclude fossil fuels to drive up the price of fossil fuel to make it more competitive with renewables. The problem with renewables has nothing to do with the pace at which we build out wind and solar. It has everything to do with the pace at which we build out transmission infrastructure to get the renewable electricity to the consumer and our ability to store renewable energy given the intermittency of wind and solar. So those two problems have to be solved and the oil price has nothing to do with that other than Low oil prices will help build lower cost turbines and solar panels and lithium ion batteries to make the energy transition even more cost effective.
0: So partners wisely sat out Cleantech 1.0. Why did you stay out and why do you think things have changed?
1: We just looked at it. This is 2005, 2014 period is what we call a Cleantech 1.0. And we were were excited by it because it it looked like it was going to be a mega trend. But as we looked at the fickle nature of regulation and subsidies, the slow pace of technology, and we're very familiar with venture capitals finding out that these are capital-intensive businesses. And we were seeing China do some pretty scary things in terms of subsidies to basically dominate solar panels in the world. And so it just looked like a terribly complex, unfigureoutable Investment arena. And so we just stayed out of it and watched some of the worst returns in any equity sector being realized and felt good about that, but learned from it and kept watching. Actually, in 2019, we felt there were areas, there was still a huge uncertainty. This is the most complicated area for the exact same reasons 1.0 was complicated. This current energy transition environment is extremely difficult to figure out. But there are a number of areas where you can invest, which are pretty safe. And we we described the three areas. One, the the picks and shovel. So there's just so much money going into infrastructure, whether it's wind and solar, charging stations, battery networks, and so forth. There's all kinds of services and software that can be sold into that. We're invested in a number of these directly through co-investments. So, one is software for managing the efficiency of solar panel farms. And so, that's picks and shovels is a great area. We've done very well in that. Secondly, is what I call the clear pathway. If you can see a clear pathway to investing in something, I'll use bioenergy as an example. It's got the right subsidies, they're locked in for a long time, and the economics of it don't require subsidies. You've got huge policy support for it. And the economics are pretty good, clear pathway, you can go for that. And then finally, there's the enablers. And this is scarier, but things like hydrogen and electrolysis businesses, we just know that's going to be such a critical enabler of the overall energy transition. And we're seeing the sort of cost improvement with the doubling and tripling, quadrupling of capacity, that that's a powerful enabler with a huge market. And so... Let's take the risk of early stage investing in that sort of sector. But we don't invest in infrastructure, renewables, and a lot of the the big ticket areas, which are already experiencing troubled returns because of excess capacity and build out. The most important thing that we've learned is that a lot of people are investing against what has to happen in the world, not what is going to happen. And that's why there's too much money chasing the renewables infrastructure, for example, because all these reports from McKinsey and Arena and IEA were all saying this is what has to happen. And it's not going to happen for the reasons I cited. So we have to invest around that. But the most most dangerous thing we see today is the net zero goal. So I'd love to ask your listeners in the family office to put their hands up for how many of you as family offices have net zero emissions goals. And I hope it's a very small number, because if that implies you right now building portfolios that do not own any carbon emitters, then that you're not having any impact on the energy transition. Quite possibly, you are impeding the energy transition. And here's why. The energy transition is going to happen because the biggest emitters invest in lower carbon emitting processes okay? And we want to own those companies. We want to give them a lower cost of capital. We want shareholders to back the most progressive cement companies, steel companies, electricity utility companies that are actively investing in those lower carbon processes and we will do it in a way that is cost-effective and shareholder value-creating. And those exist. I could give you a portfolio today of 40 Equity. So out of 2,800 equities in the MSCI ACQUI index, they emit roughly 11 gigatons, a billion tons of greenhouse gases a year. 44 of them account for half of that, okay? So five and a half gigatons. Those 44 already have plans in place to take that, those emissions, scope one, two, and three, down by two gigatons by 2030. I'd much rather own those companies that when I call the brown to green companies, they're the improvers. My money is having an impact there because I'm supporting the biggest decarbonizer. Isn't that the right way to invest? That's the opposite of a net zero campaign. And we're subscribers to IGCC, the institutional investors group for climate change. And they're big fans. I mean, they're really pushing the net zero targets for institutional investors and it's fine for 2050, but not for 2030 and 2040. You want to own a lot of carbon, and you want to own those entities that are doing the most to decarbonize the planet. And you can do that. And how do you think
0: about How do you put a structure around regulatory risk going forward?
1: It's part of the formula. So you don't invest in just the biggest emitters. You invest in the companies that have a clear runway, as we talked about before, to achieving those goals. This isn't a passive strategy. This is a very active strategy. You you have to study the plans of these companies and understand how much of those plans are dependent on subsidies and how firm and secure are those subsidies with the default assumption that they're not at all firm or guaranteed. You, You want to own the companies that have the biggest potential change and a clear runway to achieving it in an economically viable way. That's what you want to own. And I believe that those companies will attract some of the biggest re-ratings. Right now, they've got terrible ratings. These are cheap stocks, right? And so own them today. And I think they'll be some of the highest rated public companies in 2030 you got to worry about it, is the short answer. You have to worry about it. You have to be experts on regulation. You have to understand what's happening with carbon trading, taxation, and credits as a critical assumption. So there has to be a macro overlay on that investment strategy, understanding the obstacles to the transition, and you invest in the companies that appear to have a clean runway. How
0: do you know if you're doing it right?
1: They achieve their goals. It doesn't know how they're where I guess the, the reason I ask
0: it is that a lot of family offices struggle with it because you're not getting the typical feedback that you get, which obviously are investment returns because it's a longer term commitment.
1: Yeah. So I wouldn't put your entire portfolio in this because I don't think any asset manager could put their hand on heart and say, this is one of the highest alpha generating strategies I can offer you. It's more, it's definitely the highest impact, no question because that portfolio will report every year how much carbon came out of the companies that you own. And you'll know that. now. So the impact is certain. The alpha is not, okay? But the right benchmark for that portfolio is not the MSCI world. The right benchmark is the mix of sectors that you're in. And so cement and steel and transport and so forth, that should be your benchmark. And then the rest of your portfolio gives you your growth and technology and other things that have nothing to do with carbon impact other than you're avoiding it with Microsoft or Meta.
0: What do you think about current ESG strategies?
1: I think the heart's in the right place. All investors should be investing behind sustainable businesses that are good for the planet and for society. It's really hard to execute, especially when you put ESG on the label. That's just cats and dogs and oranges and bananas. It's just too many different things. And so what we say to our clients is we've got to focus if we're going to do something. Let's focus on two areas in the two really three areas, but two areas are energy transition and DEI in corporate world and DEI in the asset manager world. But the third one is healthcare. There's a, but we've always been big investors in the healthcare and the biotech space. And we think a lot of really powerful things are happening there. So if you want to have impact, those are the three key areas. There's lots of other areas, but a lot of those that are measured by ESG all of our asset managers are running a mile away from, like child labor, tobacco. A lot of those are already absent from most asset managers' portfolios. And you don't need an ESG policy to get them to be sensible. Whereas you do, we do work directly with our asset managers on the energy transition. We know a lot about it, in most cases, more than they do. And at some point, that will reverse and they will know a lot more than we do. But right now, We're sitting down with them with all our research and we're saying, we hope you're thinking about carbon taxation uh, in your industrial sector. And we give them our views on that. And five years from now, I think it'll be just table stakes that every asset manager in the world will be experts on the energy transition just the way they are today on digital transformation, right? They know the impact on every company of IT. They don't know the impact today of the energy transition on most of their companies that's what really needs to change. And that's a big focus of ours. It's the single biggest area that I focus on personally inside Partners Capital. So one final question, how
0: has working with these talented clients over the years affected the way that you manage your own personal money? Do you think in terms of your own legacy?
1: I do think the family office purpose issue is paramount. So that the white paper we wrote on family, I can give you the one sentence answer. Most family offices that we've come across have not thought long and hard enough about purpose. And that's what I've learned from a lot of the private equity type people. I think they're a little bit more thoughtful about uh, family unity. It's really important to them. They don't just want a legacy that for their $3 billion that lasts for five generations. They want it to be a catalyst, the glue for families for generations going forward. That's really hard to structure. But if that's your purpose and you're clear on that purpose, then you set out the right vision for the family office, the right mission, and the right strategy for the family office. So if you don't get that purpose, then it all falls apart. And I, I, a great anecdote where it forced me to write this paper on the family office. We didn't write it for 30, 23 years because every family office is so different. But I was pulled into a room by 40-year-old gentleman who is his number four son of five kids that this industrialist, is an Austrian and he's handing over, he's handed over leadership to his oldest child, which was a woman that's in her forties. And Alex, let's call him Alex, came to me and said, I've I've run out of rope here. I don't seem to be able to build my own thing. I'm going to leave. And the reason for that is his father, after he had a five-year stint at Apollo, Stanford MBA, his father put him in charge of building a private equity business focused on retail, and we all knew what happened to retail and COVID. And so it wasn't a great experience. He's had seven years in the family office and he hasn't built up any assets himself because of the way the patriarch is running the governance of this. And so he's going to leave. And I just thought, no, I've got to talk to this family. You can't have you you gotta structure it such that the family member is doing what they want to do and they feel strongly they're able to do and add value to the overall family business or family unit and add unity for generations beyond him or her. So anyway, that's what the paper says is understand all of you implicitly have family unity as an inherent goal to the family office. Make it explicit and then add the other purposes with respect to building great businesses, adding huge value in certain philanthropic interests and so forth. But make sure it takes advantage of best practices to keeping families together.
0: And Miranda, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today.
1: That's been great. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.